Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Just a warning, this episode contains strong language and content, because history does sometimes. A little change in geography, a new tempo, and Nelson Eddy takes to the land of tall pines and stalwart men with a song of the Canadian Northwest from one of his most famous pictures, Rosemary. Nelson Eddy singing the Song of the Mountie. The Mountie, one of Canada's most recognizable icons. He stands tall in his long red jacket called a surge. His wide-brimmed campaign hat casts a shadow over his bright blue eyes, leaving you no choice but to focus on his perfectly square jaw. This version of the Mountie became one of the most popular characters in books and movies of the 20s and beyond, a popularity that would last for decades. The Mountie was a benevolent protector, a do-gooder, and nice... He was Canadian after all. So it seemed like an obvious pairing when in 1995 the RCMP would license the use of the Mountie image to Disney, famous for the creation of beloved characters like Mickey Mouse and Goofy. So how did a police force manage to cultivate an image so pure that Disney would take them on? This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Leah, and um, what a disturbing song to open the episode with. I know, right? So what you just heard was a song from the 1954 film Rosemary. It is one of the most popular Mountie films of all time, so much so that it was remade several times. It really solidified the iconic Canadian Mountie, you know, the one who's on horseback in the Rockies, fighting crime and bears, that whole thing. It's so weird that one of our country's icons is a cop, right? Like, a Mountie is a cop, right? It's super strange. I mean, how many other countries have you visited where you can buy a keychain of a moose in a policeman's uniform? It's very bizarre. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it is very bizarre. I mean, Egypt has the pyramids and Mm -hmm. Australia has koalas and we have police. I know. And the reasons (laughs) that happened have very much have to do with the history of policing in Canada. So today we're going to try and figure out when and why Canada's police force started, why Ireland and India played a role in their creation, and how in those early years of policing, they created a relationship with Indigenous people that, for better or for worse, is still going on today. 
We're also going to unpack why the Mountie became this worldwide pop culture legend, because that's also a big part of the story. Okay, well, this sounds like a lot. It's going to be a lot. So the first thing you should know is the RCMP, the current police that we have, is related to Canada's first police, and that was called the Dominion Police Force. So the RCMP is directly related to the Dominion Police Force. So how did they get started? Like, I feel like it probably wasn't a good beginning. Well, Canada became a country in 1867. Over the next couple of years, a number of settler cities formed their own police. Um, Some people relied on the military, but there wasn't really one central police force for all of Canada. The Dominion Police Force was started in response to an assassination of a man named Thomas McGee. He was a MP, a member of parliament, and he was killed by Irish nationalists, the Fenian Brotherhood. Okay, I know the Fenian Brotherhood. They wanted to end British rule in Ireland. I didn't know, you know, that that happened here. Yeah, they were in the U.S. They were here. It was all over the place. And Thomas McGee, who was Irish and used to fight against British rule, um, he actually turned around and eventually tried to get Irish Canadians and Irish people to work with the British, which didn't work out so well for him because the Fenian Brotherhood shot him. And then the government of Canada got freaked out and hence the Dominion police. Okay, got it. So Dominion... They were kind of the first police force, but they weren't everywhere. That's right. And mostly people were organizing themselves. Like I said, there were different police groups wherever settlers were. Meanwhile, the hundreds of thousands of First Nations, Inuit and Métis people didn't give a care about these new white folks' self-policing ideals. They were doing their own thing. But John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister of Canada, looked around and decided the country should have a countrywide police force and modeled it after Ireland's police, the Royal Irish Constabulary. Royal Irish Constabulary. It sounds nice, like, but yes. it's terrible, I know. Okay, so <laughs> why the Irish police? Like, wasn't he from Scotland? So, like, Johnny McDonald was from Scotland, so... Yeah, he was. But the Irish Constabulary, they weren't really Irish. The Irish police force was used by England to control Ireland. The okay, Fenian Brotherhood, right? Okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Fenian sense. Brotherhood, who I was just talking about, there were many folks like that in Ireland, I mean, all over the place, that had been resisting the colonial rule of Britain against Ireland. There was a lot of unrest in Ireland because the Irish didn't want to be under English control. Sounds familiar. Right? Okay. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, we're drawing some threads here. Yeah. The police force was used to squelch strife. And since Johnny McDonald wanted Canada to have control in the Northwest Territories, where thousands of Indigenous people were and settlers were not, he knew he was going to need a force to do the same thing for Canada. Right. So he was kind of taking what was happening in Ireland with that police force and trying to transplant it to here. Yeah. And even more eye opening to me was that the first police commissioner was given orders to make Canada's police force multiracial. This was in 1870. So that's a big deal, I think. Okay, wait. So they wanted to make the indigenous people cops? Yes, that is what they wanted. They were trying to reproduce the policing model in India. The British authorities in India opened their police force and they wanted South Asian people to come in as a way of integrating into the culture and getting South Asian people to do their work for them. That was successful there. So John A. Macdonald saw a lot of problems arising in Canada with indigenous people since they were similar 
similar to what the British people were facing as they colonized India. He thought like, great, let's synergy. I'm sure he didn't use the word synergy, but like he was like, yes, this is going to work well for us. Let's do this with our own police force. What I find so interesting about this is that, yes, like the British were looking at places that they had already colonized or were in you know, in the process of colonizing and sort of just grabbed bits and pieces of their own. They like colonized their own colonization or something. You know what I mean? Like they just took parts no, of things. No, I don't. No, I know. <laughs> no, I know. But what you're saying is, it's essentially like Canada, because it was so influenced by British rule and because, you know, most of the people who had settled here were British, they looked at that model, what they were doing around the world and thought, let's do this in Canada. Canada. It's worked out everywhere else. Yeah. Worked out is in quotes, obviously. All right. So so what happens next? So the Dominion police force gave way to a new group called the Northwest Mounted Police. And to figure out what happened next, I spoke to Dr. Winona Wheeler. My name is Winona Wheeler. I'm a member of the Fish River Cree Nation in Treaty 5 Territory. And my people come from George Gordon First Nation in Treaty 4 Territory in southern Saskatchewan. I'm an associate professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan, and I'm a historian by training. So I asked Dr. Wheeler if she could help me figure out why so many history books frame the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police as an entirely positive thing. Like, if you read some of these books, it's like, this was the greatest thing to happen to Canada since uh, Ryan Reynolds. I don't know. Or whatever you would like to insert here as being great. (laughs) I don't think that's how time works, but all right. They talk about the fact in these books that the police were used to protect Indigenous people from unscrupulous Americans and to be facilitators, you know, to help Canada negotiate treaties with First Nations and Métis people. But that's a confusing message because they were created really as a semi-military force. And their original name was going to be the Northwest Mounted Rifles, which has a real military vibe. So they were a, we're hired guns who will shoot you that's like that's the kind of name that they were originally going with exactly i mean they could have called themselves the royal mounted negotiators but they didn't yeah no one would have believed that (laughs) sorry (laughs) well i mean i guess not because that's not really what they ended up doing so dr wheeler and i talked about the official reason for why they were created and then the reality of what they were actually used for after they were created? Well, they were created in 1873 by federal legislation. And they were created basically to police present-day Western Canada. The official version, the official Canadian version of their story is that they were created and sent to end frontier violence and to protect First Nations. But in the big picture, they were created to prepare the West for the Canadian National Railway and for the settlers that were expected to follow. There's been a lot of studies done, historical research done on the Northwest Mounted Police and First Nations, and they generally agree that the Mounties were on the front line of Canada's efforts to extinguish Aboriginal title and procure settlement and to ensure economic development went unhindered. They were employed to assert Canada's hegemony 
in the Western interior. Okay, so when she says they were asserting Canada's hegemony, that's a polite way of saying the police were there to make sure Canada would dominate over First Nations and Métis people in the West. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And let me clarify why she mentions Western Canada specifically. It's because this is where the big pull was for Canada to get land. And what we now call the West was known as the Northwest Territories. Right, yes. So Alberta... Manitoba, Saskatchewan were the Northwest Territories at this time. Yes, and that also included all of the places in the Northwest Territories now, places like Yellowknife. I mean, it was a huge territory. I asked her why all of this Indigenous land was so important to Canada. Canada was trying to assert its authority over what is now Western Canada. And Canada was also concerned about the U.S. trying to move further north, what was considered Canadian turf into the U.S. America. So they needed to secure the border. They needed to secure access to the lands. And they didn't want to take the same route that the U.S. Americans took, which was military, um, with a lot of Indian wars. They didn't want to take that route because it was very expensive. Okay, so this semi-military force, the Northwest Mounted Police, was the answer to not looking like Canada was sending in the military. It sounds like the beginning of the national myth that Canadians are more peaceful than Americans. That's right. Phelan, can you read this quote from John A. Macdonald, uh, the prime minister at this time? Oh, John A.? Mm-hmm. Okay, sure. No wars with First Nations people for us. We are Canadians, so what we're going to do is drive a railway straight through hundreds of thousands of people's homes, and if they complain, I'll starve them. Eventually, I'll take their children away and harm families irreparably for generations. The cool thing is, no one in power will hold it against me, and I'm going to have tons of statues and buildings built in my name as a result. That being said, things are going to get a bit dicey for my statues around 2015 or so, but I'll still be on the money. So, it's cool. Brilliantly done. So is that a direct quote? <laughs> yes, I actually found it in my own personal archive of Prime Minister quotes that I made up that I feel are accurate. Oh, good. Nice. Thank yeah, you. I feel like it's, you know, a page ripped out of his <laughs> brandy-stained diary. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So basically, John A.'s plan was to build a railway, and he knew that Indigenous people would be like, uh, no, so he needed the help of a police force. Okay, so... The force started in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta, or the Plains, because that's where they wanted to clear a path for the Canadian Pacific Railway. That's right, correct? Right. The goal was to create a space for the railway and then more settlers as a result. Remember, there wasn't really much of Canada in the West at this time. There was no major settlement in what was now called Western Canada, except for Red River, now called Winnipeg, Portage Prairie, and a few other places that were originally fur trade posts that expanded into small settlements. So there were very, very few settlements and very, very few settlers outside of what's called Manitoba. It was Indian territory. So First Nations, Métis people were the majority population, and there was no authority governing them. Why would they? These were several different autonomous and sovereign nations. Like it would be like if all of a sudden Sweden showed up and told Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. that they would now be governed by them. 
And they would live by their rules. I know. Yeah. All of a sudden, we would all be carrying around like 50 different Allen keys to try and get into things. We'd only be allowed <laughs> Billy bookcases as furniture. Even our chairs would be Billy bookcases. You know what? I don't actually know anything about Sweden. You don't, right? Yeah. If you got to start your car, you need an Allen key for that. <laughs> exactly. I apologize yeah. to all our Swedish listeners here. Yes. I'm so sorry, Sweden. <laughs> So the indigenous nations and the Métis people, they couldn't have enjoyed this authority being pushed upon them. No, no, no. And the Métis had already rallied against Canada deciding it could arbitrarily buy territory from the Hudson's Bay, who had also arbitrarily decided it owned land that it never asked to buy or, you know, got permission to buy. Some of it was Métis territory. So in 1869, Métis people, as well as some First Nations, occupied the land and resisted Canadian control. The Métis declared their own provisional government to negotiate, and as a result, one of our land's most famous leaders would emerge. Louis Riel? That is correct. Ding, ding. Ten points for you. So... The uprising led to the creation of the province of Manitoba. The new province of Manitoba did no favor to the Métis, and most were forced to move farther west out of their, you know, homelands. Riel became loved by the Métis people and indigenous people overall and hated by Canada, so he fled to the U.S. The Northwest Mounted Police were formed, but were not a big presence at this time until the Cypress Hill Massacre happened. Okay, I only know Cypress Hill, the group. Yeah. <laughs> so my mind automatically goes there. You know what? I have to admit, when I Googled Cypress Hill to start this, I was like, I don't think this is the Cypress Hill. You got to put Cypress Hill Massacre to get this information. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me tell you about Cypress Hill. All right. So Cypress Hill would be some of present day southern Saskatchewan and Alberta and some of Canada and the U.S. border. Winona told me it's a breathtaking place that has basically everything. These small mountains just kind of popping up out of the prairie. And they were a haven to wildlife, and there was creeks and rivers, really good hunting, beautiful territory. And historically, it served as um, hunting territory, served as meeting grounds, sometimes a conflict zone um, for Indigenous peoples. Predominantly, the First Nations in that area were Nihilwak people, Nihilwak Cree, Nakoda, Assiniboine people, Atsina, Blackfoot, Soto, or Anishinaabe. Lakota, Sioux, Crow, and Métis. Those were the nations that frequented the Cypress Hills area. So you can see the potential there for a lot of meeting, a lot of negotiation, a lot of inter-tribal ceremony and conflict as well. It served also as a wintering ground for a lot of the nations. Um, and there's many ceremonial sites and other sacred sites throughout the hills as well. So at this point, the bison, also known as the buffalo, were disappearing. There was deliberate overhunting going on as a way to force Indigenous people into submission. There were bounties placed on buffalo skulls, and so the animal was being decimated. Right. And the buffalo were an integral part of the ecosystem and of indigenous life. The furs were really valued for trade. Uh, pemmican was also in high demand, which is kind of like a jerky mixed with berries and fat, and it's dried and it lasts forever, and it could sustain you through the winter, and it was just an incredibly important food item. Yeah, the buffalo was everything. You know, it was a mall. You know, you get your clothes at buffalo, baby a snack, also dinner. You can make your shelter with it. It was truly a one-stop shop. 
the West Edmonton Buffalo. Lost in Heights Buffalo. <laughs> but you give, yeah, I, don't, I feel like there's a jingle in here, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. They get yeah. it. It's replacing the word mall with buffalo. You understand. That's the joke. And it's an amazingly written it's joke. It's such a good joke. <laughs> it's like inspired. Woo. But yeah, I mean, they were so incredibly valued and everybody wanted them. U.S. American buffalo hunters that were just out for tongues and, and robes. The Métis hunting camps were huge, you know, and they went out onto the plains for months at a time. A lot of First Nations that were parkland peoples moved out onto the plains to hunt because buffalo pemmican was really an important trade item. So there was a really strong, huge buffalo hunting economy that was happening on the plains. And so there was huge competition for that. So the buffalo were declining considerably. I think they were gone from what's now Manitoba by the late 1850s. By the 1860s, buffaloes were in decline, but they wintered in a place, and guess where that was? I'm going to guess Cypress Hill. You are correct, Cypress Hill. So Cypress Hill, it was a frontier, and it was becoming overrun by a lot of American dudes who were being accused of bad trades and being dubious. You know, they traded a lot of alcohol, which was great because it was easily portable and valued, but it also meant that everyone was drinking a lot. Dr. Wheeler told me that by June 1st, 1873, everything came to a head between American buffalo hunters... U.S. and Canadian wolfers, or wolf hunters, as they were called, whiskey traders, and First Nations and Métis people. A lot of people would be involved in what we now call the Cypress Hill Massacre. The Northwest Wanted Police had already been created even before this massacre, but the massacre itself was a catalyst to get them established out west, to actually start hiring the Northwest Wanted Police and get them moving out west. It began when a bunch of American wolfers, the wolf hunters, claimed that some First Nations people stole their horses. So they decided to get the U.S. military involved. Oh, of course. I mean, why not? That's very reasonable and, and responsible. and Very measured. Very, it makes a lot familiar. of sense, right? Mm-hmm. You stole my horse. Yeah. I'm going to call in the brigade. Yeah, exactly. But actually, the U.S. military didn't want anything to do with it and didn't get involved. So the wolfers decided to take matters into their own hands. They went to a small fur trading post. As others joined them, they focused their anger and accusations at some Assiniboine or Nakota people who were being led by Little Soldier. They made their way to a small free trading post in the hills that was known to trade whiskey for furs and that others joined them there. And then there was others there as well. And they targeted a small band of Nakota people who were camped close to the post under the leadership of Little Soldier. The post was manned by a fur trader who, you know, was pretty confident and told these wolfers, I don't think they got your horses. They only have a few of their own, right? But they all went down there and um, demanded that the Nakota give him back his horses. And when it was clear that the Assiniboine didn't have them, then, you know, there was some rough housing going on. So the wolfers left. They went back to their fur trade post and drank that night. I mean, they drank a lot. When they got up the next morning, they noticed a horse was missing, and they took off back to the Nakota or Assiniboine camp. They confronted Little Soldier about the lost horse. And he told them, no, we don't have that horse here. The horse you're talking about, he's up on another hill over there. He must have got loose. But, you know, Little Soldier said, you know, I've got a couple of horses here. Why don't you take these in hostage until you get yours back? 
And so they were trying to negotiate, but the reality was that the wolfers and the non-Indigenous peoples had been drinking heavily, and there was a lot of heavy drinking at the Nakota camp as well. And so they weren't able to negotiate very effectively, right? They weren't able to reach a peaceful resolution. So what happens next? Well, there's so many different accounts, but basically, all hell broke loose. More on that after this. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aisling Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. What is clear is that the vigilantes opened fire on the Nakota camp, and at least 30 Nakota peoples were killed and one wolfer. But it didn't just end there, you know, it didn't just end with that massacre. It was awful, absolutely awful. The Nakota camp was totally destroyed. Women and children and old people were scattered. They were cut down. Women were captured and taken back to the fort where they were brutalized. You know, the vigilantes also stole what little possessions the Nakota had, and they burnt the rest. And then all over the valley, there was the bodies of the dead and dying Nakota people, and they say that their bones laid there for years and years. So it wasn't just to go in and kill Indians and leave. I mean, it was, it was brutal. It was really, really violent and awful. This happened in June, and news of it didn't reach the Canadian government in Ottawa until August. And what was that response? Actually, Canada tried to punish the Americans. And Canada, interestingly enough, tried very hard to get the U.S. American vigilantes extradited to be tried for murder. That's interesting. Yeah, and they went great efforts to, to do that. What that did, of course, was cause more confrontation, conflict between Canada and the U.S., right? In the end, this resulted in the Northwest Mounted Police being solidified by an act of Parliament. They were to be a semi-military force that would be controlled by Ottawa and not local officials in the Northwest. And despite that, the Wolfers were acquitted and never went to jail for the Cypress Hill Massacre. So at this time, I can't imagine that there were a ton of Indigenous people who were just signing up to, you know, become a Mountie. Yeah, no, that idea of getting Indigenous folks on the force went out the window as they were getting pushback all across the plains. First Nations and Métis people took notice. I think the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police was just as much political as anything else, right? First Nations throughout the West were pretty upset about the massacre, pretty distrustful, and could easily have been very volatile out here. But Canada made efforts to charge and try the Wolfers, right, and to dispatch the Northwest Mounted Police. And those two actions were, I believe, an attempt to gain First Nations trust. And so the dispatching of the Northwest Mounted Police and the treaty process to a large degree was, like I say, to convince them that Canada intended peaceful settlement and would not follow the violent land grabs happening south of the border. And so the Northwest Mounted Police were told that their job was to maintain peaceful relations with First Nations people. On the one hand, on the other hand, their job was to implement laws. Okay, so let me get this straight. Canada did try to show the First Nations and Métis people in the area around Cypress Hill that they would 
punish these American men who were responsible for a massacre. As a result, Canada boosted the numbers of the Northwest Mounted Police so that they could patrol the area. But at the same time, they wanted the police to be responsible for building good relationships with First Nations so they could negotiate treaties. And so the kicker is, like a lot of these treaties, they meant a huge loss not only of land, but of free movement. So if the Northwest Mounted Police had to implement the laws of Canada, wouldn't that mean that they were helping to force Indigenous people on reserves, right? Yes, that's exactly it. Enforcing the law, I mean, it gets complicated. And the Northwest Mounted Police were expected to be there and to facilitate all of the treaty signings. The Indian Act was created in 1876, and one of its primary goals was to eliminate Indigenous people. And one way that Canada did that was to create the reserve system through getting First Nations people to sign treaties. We did a whole episode about that if you want to be depressed and mad and angry and, you know, learn a bunch of things that will fill you full of rage. So that's in season two. So yeah. go check what a, that what out. What a for great fun. ad for our show. You can check <laughs> it out in the feed right I'm after sorry. this one. Get depressed yeah. and mad. But yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's true, though. So a massive detail here was that while this was all going on, there was widespread disease and mass starvation. Entire generations of Indigenous people were being wiped out on the plains. Yes, the buffalo was disappearing. That was part of it. But the other part is that Canada wanted the Indigenous peoples of the plains to starve. A genocide was occurring. So when treaties like Treaty 6 in Saskatchewan were being negotiated, the Plains and the Woods Cree and the Assiniboine, they got a guarantee for assistance for famine or pestilence relief. So what this meant was that the government promised rations and this would help if, you know, they were struck by famine. But they only provided salt pork. Eating only salt pork is a really great way of getting scurvy. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to become malnourished as well. like, And it's also not part of a traditional diet, which would just be a shock to your system, right? A total shock. And this time was brutal. Missionaries reported desperate children walking through the snow without enough clothing to beg for food and people shooting their dogs for food and eating the leather on their clothing for food. The Canadian government under John A. Macdonald knew it was happening and responded by further cutting rations and relief money under the assumption that a hungry and desperate population wouldn't fight back. But of course, that was a ridiculous notion. People did fight back. Cree women in particular were generally responsible for hunting small game in addition to gathering. So when the bison started declining and hunger was on the rise, they started hunting gopher. Clearing a path for the railway and subduing Indigenous people was so important to Johnny MacDonald that he became Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. He and his government looked at thousands of starving Indigenous people with indifference and at times outright malice. In an actual quote, he said, It is true that Indians, so long as they are fed, will not work. I have reason to believe that the agents as a whole, and I am sure it is the case with the commissioner, are doing all they can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense. We hope that the Indians will now settle down. But Indians are Indians and we must submit to frequent disappointments in the way of civilizing them. 
So much was changing. The year the Indian Act was created was the same year that Cree leaders like Chief Big Bear, Poundmaker, Chief Little Pine, Lucky Man, and others would deliberate as to whether they should sign Treaty 6. For instance, Poundmaker thought that the idea of reserves were ridiculous and was skeptical about how much land Canadians could claim through treaties in the first place. This is a direct quote from him. This is our land. It isn't a piece of pemmican to be cut off and given in little pieces back to us. It is ours, and we will take what we want. He and the other leaders were skeptical that the government, and by extension the Northwest Mounted Police, would keep its promises. Spoiler alert. Yeah, that was a no. So Chief Big Bear and other leaders, they had a plan. Their vision was to create a huge Indian territory in southern Saskatchewan, Alberta, where all the First Nations would be able to continue on with their way of life as long as they could. The federal government wanted no part of that at all. One of the strategies for the settlement of the West was divide and conquer. So you acknowledge and create small bands and have small reserves and you try to spread them all apart. These leaders were down in in the Cypress Hills, refusing to move on to reserves and holding their own as best they could. Eventually what happened was the U.S. military in collaboration with Canada and the Northwest Mounted Police disarmed them, took their horses and marched them north. By the end of it, Chief Big Bear, Little Pine and Lucky Man all signed due to starvation. And Poundmaker reluctantly signed Treaty 6 because he was outranked and outvoted by other chiefs. Their fears had been realized, and when Poundmaker tried to host a Sundance so the chiefs could meet, the Northwest Mounted Police showed up with 90 armed men, claiming to be looking for someone who assaulted a farm instructor. Poundmaker and the chiefs avoided battle with the police and refused to give a man up because there was no guilty man. But it would be a reminder of how life would be now with the constant threat of the police. Remember, the buffalo is gone. People were told to turn to agriculture, but crops were failing. And with all that, settlers were bringing in cattle, which was, you know, changing the terrain. A year before the government decided to close Fort Walsh, this was the Northwest Mounted Police headquarters in Cypress Hill, the police there objected because they could see how bad the famine was and thought closure would make it worse on Indigenous folks. But John A. McDonald's government insisted on the closure, and by October 1884, the Northwest Mounted Police Force would now be under the mandate of the Department of Indian Affairs. Ugh. I just got, like, chills. That's so creepy and wrong. It's bad. It's really bad. And Indian Affairs was in charge of the Indian Act, so it banned ceremony, dance, language. And for coastal people, it meant that the potlatch, which was a crucial part for so many different nations in B.C., was illegal. And for Plains Nations, the Sundance became banned. The Northwest Mounted Police were in charge of enforcing the ban against the Sundance. After visiting the Ghana Sundance, the superintendent of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police wrote to his superiors asking them to discourage the ceremony due to its quote-unquote primitive brutality. And they did. Many Cree would continue doing them in secret, but often the Mounties would find out and arrest and jail those who did. So people stopped out of fear. Yeah, so those ceremonies, they had to go underground. And, like, that's something that can never be taken back, right? Like, so many things were lost during those years, and many communities are still attempting to recover those traditions. And the Mounties would be responsible for a system designed to pull apart the very fabric of Indigenous life. 
Canadian Northwest. Here, the first traders from the old world intermarried with the Indians of the plains and the forests to found a new race, the Metis of Canada. Metis? <laughs> I know. Who knew we had been pronouncing <laughs> Métis wrong this whole time? Oh, God, how embarrassing. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, also that guy has, like, some serious whistling dentures. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what's, what, what is this? What, what are you making me listen to? <laughs> this is just one of a few of Mountie films that I pulled from, but this one is from the 1940s motion picture, The Northwest Mounted Police. It stars Gary Cooper. Um, think of a present-day kind of George Clooney look. Oh, for I those. know Gary Cooper is. Well, I know you know because we do this right, history okay, stuff. Yeah. I'm talking about people who don't know. He was a big star at this time and this movie is supposed to be about the Northwest resistance but it took a lot of creative license let's just say for some reason the lead character is a Texan ranger who ends up fighting with the Mounties against Louis Real that didn't happen the Métis people are also almost all played by white actors with Mexican accents for some reason it doesn't <laughs> I just it was this movie was a lot you mean the, the Métis people here here let's take a listen to their terrible accents all right, all please right. Canada, change plenty. No more she belong to the half-breed Louis. The law come on the old trails. White people steal the land. The surveyor tell us where we got to live. We send letter to government. Plenty letter. She is too busy for listen. Government take care of the Indians. Take care of the white settler. Hey, nobody take care of the half-breed peoples. So that is supposed to be a Métis guy talking to Louis Riel. I don't really know what that accent is like yeah it's hard to like, say who's the accent coach on this film <laughs> accent i feel coach. like it's generous to call it a film <laughs> okay so okay but this is the kind of stuff that made mounties popular yeah right? like this is part of that iconic image part of it all i mean from the get-go around the 1880s like right when they started to the 20s 1920s the mountie adventure novel was a hit they were written by canadians but also american and british writers and then after that, it took off in Hollywood when film really started up in the 20s and beyond. The Mounties became a thing, so much so that tourists come to Canada still to this day to take pictures with Mounties. They became synonymous with Canada, a nice, polite, good Canada. Right. But I don't really understand because, you know, you just told me all this horrible stuff. So, like, I just don't understand how that stuff is... Connected. How How is it connected? Yeah, like... You know, how we end up just with this hero image without anything else. Well, I mean, actually, I think the Mountie is much like Canada, right? Like the image of Canada in a lot of other people around the world's minds is of something very pure. And that's because of marketing. But I mean, when it comes down to the Mountie in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Europeans were feeling nostalgic. This was the ending of a century, and it felt like the modern world was moving too quickly. Many had fond feelings for the Victorian era and the Victorian man. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to equate that. I'm thinking back to Y2K. <laughs> Sometimes I'm nostalgic for flared jeans. <laughs> yeah. I'm nostalgic for last year. Hell, like forget to year 2000. Oh, God. I'm, yeah, I'm nostalgic. I'm nostalgic for January. <laughs> yeah, okay. But for them, it was the Victorian era. Like, this was seen as really, uh, I guess, a gentler, kind of slower-moving time that everyone was nostalgic for. And the Victorian man, he adhered to traditional hierarchy. So that means he stuck to the order 
of the world where, you know, at the time men were on top and women were not in this European culture. These men were very polite or appeared to be polite. I mean, they were the many things that the fictional Mounties would eventually become. Like these were almost nostalgia books in a way. Because it was, you know, quote unquote, undeveloped or mm-hmm. no one was there, new land. So it's like kind of like yes. a simpler yes. time. And, you know, none of the books or movies actually really accurately depict what was actually going on. So that's why the image of the Mountie is what it is. You know, writers took creative license and created heroic stories of individual accomplishment, a way of being that people longed for. The Mountie is also really tied to white supremacy and class dominance. He is always the white savior. You know, every Mountie book or film portrays indigenous people, immigrants, and French Canadians who By the way, they signal out French Canadians a lot in these books and movies as either ignorant, evil, like all of those groups are ignorant and evil. Really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's why you don't really see much of the Mountie in Quebec. That's right. No, he's an English Canadian hero. So if French and Indigenous people are portrayed as evil, this Northwest Mounted Police film with Gary Cooper, it, you know, must yep. make Louis, did Louis Riel look like Voldemort? <laughs> yeah, basically pretty much. I mean, the film is supposedly about the Northwest resistance. This is the second resistance that Louis Riel is really associated with. Now, there were several leaders of this movement, but Louis Riel really was a figurehead, but often it gets boiled down to him being the only leader at this time. The real history here was that the resistance came out of Métis and First Nations seeing their land disappear and as a direct reaction to what started at Cypress Hill, that thing that we were just talking about, the massacre. Here's Dr. Wheeler again. Métis people and other settlers wanted to protect their land. They wanted to make sure that Canada was going to protect their land because they knew that once Canada acquired the West, they were going to open it up to settlement and it was going to be a a mad rush. And that's precisely what happened. Eventually, it came to violence between the Northwest Mounted Police, who were representing Canada against the Métis and First Nations, mostly the Plains Cree. By 1885, hundreds of people would be dead, and the Northwest Mounted Police would call for help from the Canadian military. Unfortunately, it was John A. Macdonald's railway that allowed the troops to get to the area quickly in Canada's favor. After it was all over, Poundmaker and Chief Big Bear, both who I mentioned did not want to sign Treaty 6, would be criminalized. Big Bear was put in jail for treason, and Poundmaker surrendered and was also convicted of treason, an act that Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government would call unjust and say... The government of Canada recognizes that Chief Poundmaker was not a criminal, but someone who worked tirelessly to ensure the survival of his people and hold the crown accountable to its obligations as laid out in Treaty 6. We recognize that the unjust conviction and imprisonment of Chief Poundmaker had and continues to have a profound impact on the Poundmaker Cree nation. Oh, you can just hear my eyes rolling back in my head. Um, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm so sick of this guy apologizing and doing nothing. <laughs> I found it interesting because that's actually the work of the Poundmaker Cree Nation. That's how long they have been pushing for the Canadian government to recognize that what they did was wrong. And so I see it less about our 
government and more about how long his people had to work to... It's just that thing of like, you know, and I'm like, now what happens? Or does he just go, well, that's done. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the other thing, right? It's sometimes easy. Yeah. But it's also like that thing of like, when we talk about history, right? We're talking about history, but this is this is current that there are people right now going, we haven't forgotten what you did to him. Because it's not as long ago as people think or like as the memory stretches and, you know, that's right. we remember. We remember. That's right. That's right. So Louis Riel is eventually captured and he is put on trial and sentenced to death. He was hanged on November 16th, 1885, at what is today the RCMP Training Academy in Regina, Saskatchewan. After Riel's death, it meant the Mounties and Canada would be unrelenting in implementing Canadian law and the Indian Act. Louis Riel would be made an example of. There's always been a tension between Indigenous peoples and the West Mounted Police, even though there was the potential for really good relations. And in some instances, there were really good relations. The reality was, and Northwest Mounted Police was there to implement the laws that were used to restrain, contain, and control First Nations people. Okay, wow. Well, I cannot believe that was just the first 10 to 20 years of their Mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got a lot more to go. Yeah. So when did they become the RCMP? And like, when did Disney take them on despite all of this history? Good questions, but you're just going to have to wait until part two. Oh, a cliffhanger. (laughs) Yes. Nice. In part two of Mounties Always Get Their Land, we'll look at how the Northwest Mounties built the blueprint for a new police force called the RCMP. All you can do as a Native woman is always watching your back. Like, this joke I saw on Twitter about uh, this girl was demonstrating ways about how to fight off an attacker. And somebody responded with, I wish I didn't have to be Jackie Chan just to live as a woman. And that's how I feel as a Native woman. Like, not even the cops are going to protect me. The Secret Life of Canada is recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Our producer is TK Matunda. Our script editor is Yvette Nolan. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. Special thanks to Signe Lynch. The digital producer of CBC Podcasts is Fabiola Melendez-Carletti. Senior producer is Tanya Springer. And executive producer is RF Narani. We are on Twitter at Secret Life of CAD and Facebook and Instagram at Secret Life of Canada. If there's a piece of history you want to tell us about, email us at secretlifeofcanada at cbc.ca. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for exploring Canada's hidden history with us. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.